Wendy Hue Kyung Chun holds the research chair in new media in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University. She's also the director of the Digital Democracies Institute there. The Digital Democracies Institute is a group of scholars and stakeholders from around the world who collaborate across disciplines to research and generate more democratic technologies and cultures. Wendy herself has studied both systems design, engineering, and English literature, which she uses to understand contemporary trends and threats within digital media and emerging technologies. She's the author of books like Control and Freedom, Power and Paranoia in the Age of Fiber Optics, Programmed Visions, Software and Memory, Updating to Remain the Same, Habitual New Media, and Discriminating Data, Correlation, Neighborhoods, and the New Politics of Recognition. In what you're about to hear, Wendy and I talk about how existing network structures reinforce discrimination. She's one of a string of theorists who have been critical of what she calls the segregationist defaults that exist within these networks that we're supposed to assume are mechanical, other than human, and thus somehow devoid of prejudice. Instead, she says no. In fact, 20th century eugenics and 21st century data analytics both promote or presume segregation. This gives us a completely new way to approach the problem of political polarization. Chun argues that the assumption that people typically seek to associate with those that are like them, that look and think and act alike, this assumption about a seemingly intuitive human tendency to group together in a homogeneous way is an assumption that historically produces itself as a fact. So it's not that homogeneous groups will somehow just naturally clash with other homogeneous groups, it's that an unsustainable assumption about homogeneity and homophily as baseline realities has obscured the inherent democratic virtues of difference and a diversity of worldviews. This erases conflict, but not in the sense of finding a way to cope with it or resolve it. And so, especially in an algorithm-driven era, polarization proliferates with overwhelming force. We talk about these ideas that challenge the common sense assumptions that folks often have about the nature of contemporary technology, and also tackle things like facial recognition technology, the fact of artificial intelligence becoming an increasingly normal part of our lives. Wendy's point is that facial recognition, machine learning, these are used in insidious, often exploitative, and almost always in discriminatory ways, but that they don't need to be. AI, she says, doesn't need to be a nightmare that undermines and displaces human decision-making. What if these technologies were democratized? What if, and it may seem implausible, given the tech monopolies that silently govern many of our interactions through the diffusion of different technologies, what if there was a broader public power over these technologies? What if there was greater participation in deciding what AI should and shouldn't do? The point here is to, as she says, point to realities and futures that need to be rejected. Prediction does us no good without power. Rather than kind of jump into some of the really pressing political questions that you raise in your work, I wanted to start with a couple of definitions, just so we can kind of, you know, get our coordinates in a sense. Um, you write in a co-authored article titled Software Studies Revisited that the use of the word soft in software is gendered. Um, and I guess this idea comes from Grace Murray Hopper's work, um, who you say makes the point that actually, quote, the term software was introduced to describe compilers for computers, 
What does it say to you that at the semantic root of much of the technology that's like driven the digital revolution, we have these binaries like software and hardware, master and slave? Do these distinctions inscribe certain logics into the technology that are hard to unlearn, do you think? Absolutely. I think that what's fascinating, though, about thinking through the history is that you also realize the extent to which these binaries don't work. Um, so they don't simply um, bring out that uh, a certain logic and say that this logic will always be true, um, but also points to how the logic um, has always been called into question as well. So to mm. give you the example in terms of um, hardware and software, so what was fascinating was initially everything was called software that wasn't um, the the hardware. Uh, and so things like wiring, plug, uh plug configuration so the machines could work on certain problems were considered software. Um, and it was gendered because the configuring of these plugs was usually done by women. Um, and these women were former computers. So the other thing we have to realize is that computers were first human. Um, and at that time during World War II, they were mainly women. Um, and the logic of master and slave, um, which is key to things like flip-flops and to understanding a lot of the commands and the very notion of commands, we give our computer commands, comes from that period as well. So um, Turing used to call his computers, um, he used to jovially call them slaves. Um, and so there are all sorts of gendered and power relations um, that were in place in terms of the workplace, which got reinscribed as um, work and labor became automated. And we see that today still. Mm -hmm. I like that you say that these are actually not stable binaries at all, that they, um, part of the point maybe of, of digging up these histories, talking about them is to show how um, unstable, kind of contingent they were. Uh, and R. Um, and the other word I guess I was hoping you could unpack for us in terms of its history is algorithm, uh, which is a wor word that's kind of shrouded in secrecy now, almost associated with secrecy. Um, but you describe the interesting roots of that word in your book, Discriminating Data, uh, noting that it's a, a corruption of an Arabic name, actually, uh, or part of an Arabic name. Al-Khwarizmi, um, a reference to one of the most important Islamic mathematicians uh, who introduced algebra um, and the Arabic Hindu system of numbering to Western Europe. Um, and like here again, like we have this this history that sort of is obscured. Um, and I guess I wonder, like, is there a certain Eurocentrism at the heart of algorithmic media that we might need to sort of account for in the obscuring of that that particular history. Yes. And I think what's also key about that is if you think about the, the very notion of algorithm as coming as a, as, a, um, as a simplification of a name, it also gets us around and through the question of agency, right? So a lot of people consider algorithms to be machinic. There's no agency involved. But if we think that it comes from a name, Mm -hmm. um, it immediately brings up questions of the imbrication between humans and um, methods and also gets us to think beyond the notion that somehow algorithms are outside of agency. Mm -hmm. And 
just to go back to the master and slave example again, in terms of calling things into question and why that's productive, is that um, first of all, the whole master-slave dichotomy, um, which presumed that you know the slave just does what the master calls on them to do, of course, has been challenged historically. Um, one can think of Hegel. One can think of all sorts of instances which have shown that it's actually the people who are deemed to be the slaves or the servants who do the work. And part of the anxiety that is provoked is because the quote-unquote master will actually realizes that they rely so much on um, the slave or the servant. Mm-hmm. And so if you think through that and the implications of that, so first of all, the, the women who were doing the, the work of wiring, et cetera, were key to the whole operation. Um, but if you think of now the anxieties that we have around AI and the AI apocalypse, um, it comes from the fact that we're still treating our technologies as slaves or servants who should simply do what we say. And that historically has never been true. And so a lot of that anxiety is that the master position is being undermined, which of course it is. And so I think mm-hmm. that going and thinking through these um, these historical instances and bringing out these contradictions are so key um, because a lot of these anxieties or um, contradictions that were there from the very beginning still are with us today and point towards the ways in which technology is never simply a thing in of itself, but is always intertwined with questions of society, culture, and power. Yeah. And just to um, kind of amplify something you say in discriminating data, discriminating data, like it's not just that algorithms are definitionally based in sort of mathematical calculation. You talk about how it's also true that algorithms come from medicine, you know, where Yes, there's an individual making a diagnosis, but that diagnosis comes at the tail end of an enormous amount of training and the learning of methods for determining, you know, health and illness. But it also, if it's proper medicine in the sense of like trying to radically include patients in their own diagnosis, it's also a kind of reciprocal thing. Um, so I just, you know, I found that really interesting to kind of think through, but you mentioned artificial intelligence and, and that is certainly something I, I really wanted to ask you about because, you know, there's been so much focus recently on kind of predicting the future impacts of AI. You talk about this kind of artificial intelligent apocalypse, but recently there's been a specific kind of renewal of interest in the impact of AI on like creative labor. Uh, which has long, for a long time, been kind of seen as the frontier of of what AI can do, like a general intelligence that's capable of creating art or creating essays or or what have you. Um, so you know the rising popularity of uh, DAL E or DAL E two, this machine learning model developed by OpenAI to generate digital images from like natural language descriptions. Now Chat GPT, these AI generated essays that seem to be frightening university administrators across the board. Um, what I, what I, you know, what I like about your way of thinking about artificial intelligence is that it is not necessarily buying into that apocalyptic rhetoric. Like you're pointing out, as you say in the uh, in discriminating data, that there's no need for AI to be a nightmare of robots like usurping human decision making. It can, and you say it must be, quote, about broad participation in deciding what AI should and shouldn't do, not only in terms of human values, but also environmental ones. Um, So, you know, that seems to me about basically the means of production, about labor 
Um, and there's so much invisibilized labor, of course, involved in automation that it's unbelievable. Um, I just read today that Vice, you know, is reporting that workers in Kenya are working for like $2 an hour trying to parse thousands of lines of prose that might be traumatic in order to make chat GPT function ethically and effectively for customers. This is just a roundabout way of saying like, I agree that it can and must sort of serve certain functions that it doesn't now serve. But in what ways do you see basically neoliberal capitalism as the primary barrier to these technologies being democratic, liberatory, reparative, and those kinds of things? Yeah, I think there's such a a long history and 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 so many different ways to, to get at your question. Um, I think that what I've been inspired by is the work of people like Jason Lewis um, um, and the folks that he's, are, he's working with in terms of the indigenous AI protocol, um, as well as their very influential article, Making Kin with Our Machines, mm. which argues that we need to fundamentally rethink um, what we think artificial intelligence and our machines to be, that this is an opportunity for us to move away from this really detrimental master-slave relationship with technology, which is at, at so, uh, which again is linked to both the idea that AI will be both um, the nightmare or the savior. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and but this desire to have technology as the the savior or the nightmare. Um, is linked to notions of progress, um, is linked to notions of of, um, the desire to make our um, societal and political problems ones that technology can fix for us. Um, That somehow we can take racial discrimination, for example, and say the problem with racial discrimination is that humans are biased. And Mm -hmm. so in order to solve this problem, we're going to create these machines that don't see race, right? And this was the logic behind something like um, Compass, which is a very controversial um, risk assessment uh, program that's been used by some U.S. courts to determine both parole and sentencing. Um, And it was introduced initially as a way to uh, alleviate racism and bias, Um, but it's been sued for being racist and biased. Um, And part of that problem, of course, is that not only is it trained on incomplete and biased data, um, so what people have to realize is that when um, machines predict the future, they're not, and and people say, oh, this has been validated to predict the future 95% of the time. They've been validated by their ability to predict the past and not the future, right? So data that's usually put aside during the training phase, um, either within the same set or out of set. So what's happening is that the future is being reduced to the past. Um, And this is, and so if the past is discriminatory, um, these, it's not just that these, programs themselves will make discriminatory predictions, but they'll only be validated as true if they make these discriminatory algorithm um, predictions, right? So there's a whole sort of logic of and shutting down of the future, uh, which is crucial to all of this. Um, But you also bring up the question of labor, right? And and the fact that um, 
the the whole sort of uh, mechanical turking of AI, where people think that somehow this is all automated um, and this is fascinating. Whereas you point out that, you know, there's a whole slew of people in, um, around the world who are working on content moderation, et cetera, and other things in order to make this appear machinic and seamless. And so that, you know, really opens on to the questions that I wanted to raise about what is in some ways the kind of like political core or thrust of, of much of your work, which is the effacement of a certain, as it were, like white supremacist invisible hand that drives so much of the sort of data revolution in carceral technologies. Um, and I guess I wanted to start on that thread by asking you to kind of um, reflect on some of the people whose thinking and writing and organizing has most affected your own thinking. It seems like Ruha Benjamin has is a really important touchstone. Um, Benjamin has this an influential notion of the new Jim Code that you draw on when talking specifically about the kind of eugenicist persistence of racism through machine learning and other algorithmic technology. Like, so when you write about, quote, the segregationist defaults embedded within current network, network structures and about how 20th century eugenics and 21st century data analytics both promote or presume segregation, I see you as very much thinking with Benjamin on the problem. And so I guess, you know, what is important about Benjamin's insight that this, this new gym code is a kind of hidden technology of control in the sense that racism is, as she puts it, both magnified and buried under layers of digital denial? I think Ruha's work is fantastic. And I, I would put also as fellow travelers, um, many others such as Virginia Eubanks, um, uh, Sophia Noble, Andre Brock, mm -hmm. um, Moya Bailey, Lisa Nakamura. Um, there's been a lot of people, and some of us have been writing about this for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so I, there's, a, there's a whole group um, that I've been in conversation with. Um, and I think that what's so key about uh, Ruha's work is that she brings out the notion of the default um, and mm -hmm. how um, whiteness is a default in many of these these um, technologies. Um, and I think that one thing that's key in terms of thinking through segregation, for me, the, the way in was by, and my way into eugenics was different because I started from um, some of the fundamental principles within data science, like correlation, which is intimately linked with eugenics, and homophily, which is intimately intertwined to um, racial segregation in the U.S. In fact, comes from studies of racial segregation in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's important that we all speak to each other and have different approaches into the topic, because it's a huge topic, and there are different ways to understand and think through them. Absolutely. And so, yeah, like, you know, Benjamin says that, that this tech is promoted and perceived as more objective, right? You, you kind of touched on that, but then points out that if we look deeper at the data, which she does, like we see the reinforcement of all kinds of existing biases. Um, and you talk about the lawsuit against Compass. The example she gives is that um, in a recent audit of California's gang database, not only do Black and Latinx people constitute 87% of those listed, but many of the names turned out to be babies under the age of one. So it's like, it's a ridiculous notion that this thing could be an objective means of sort of policing society. 
Um, but as she says, like no one ventures to explain how this could have happened, except by saying that some combination of zip, zip codes and racially coded names constitute a risk. So there is this, the, you know, this group of people who are sounding the alarm on um, uh, homophily, if I'm pronouncing that correct, correctly, um, and it's it's discriminatory kind of uh, force. Um, so yeah, I mean, you say in your essay from uh, pattern discrimination uh, that networks, because of their complexities, noisiness, you're talking about like real networks, real social networks of, of actual people, because of their complexities, noisiness, and persistent inequalities, you know, foster techniques to manage, prune, and predict. That strategy of simplification for the purpose of prediction is incredibly insidious. So I guess, you know, I was hoping you could unpack this idea that homophily, the sort of structural sorting of people according to neighborhoods and similarities that are presumed to bind people together is like so deeply problematic, both historically and in the present. Yeah, uh, the other name I would put out there is Rashida Richardson, um, because her work on um, police databases has been absolutely key in understanding how incomplete and dirty they are and the impact of dirty databases on the, the U.S. legal system. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so in terms of homophily, um, it's an also clearly Oscar Gandy and his really groundbreaking work in terms of thinking through sorting and the impact of sorting um, in uh, what he calls rationalized racism. Um, I think that homophily is a slightly different way into the this question, um, but it's so key because going back to your question of neoliberalism, neoliberalism presumes that the individual is the driver behind everything, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it, it um, goes away from structural factors or rewrites structural factors as things like personal intent. Um, and so homophily, which is the notion that uh, similarity breeds connection, that birds of a feather flock together, right, um, is at the heart of all recommender systems and much social media networking itself, right? Um, yeah. So um, this is the idea, of course, that if you like something, you'll get um, recommendations of other things that are like it or that things that people like you have bought. Um, now, this is accepted somehow as the default, that this is just the way the world works. Um, now, what's fascinating is that the term homophily comes from studies of U.S. residential segregation. In fact, one biracial um, housing project. And um, the folks who started the study um, uh, at the uh, Bureau of Applied Sociological Research at Columbia actually didn't think that homophily was the only form of friendship formation. Um, in fact, they coined the term heterophily too, which is the idea that opposites um, drive friendship formation as well. And they mm -hmm. found in their study actually that um, status homophily wasn't absolute, um, except they argued in, in um, terms of gender and race. Um, and they argued that this was so um, because of value homophily, that the idea that somehow people align with others based on their own values. Um, and they, and, but to make this case, um, they did things that were, that we would now statistically speaking um, and within the realm of statistics really question, right? So in order to um, show that homophily existed, what they did was um, they said that 
people who were um, liberals overselected liberal friends and people who were illiberal overselected illiberal friends. But in order to make this point, right, they did this survey of, of 400 families, every single family within this biracial housing project. But in order to make this point, they threw out all the responses of black residents. Um, and not only that, they threw out a, a good portion of the responses of white residents as well, because the way they defined um, liberal and friend was and illiberal as friend was was very interesting. So they asked everyone who their three closest friends were, irregardless of where they lived um, in whether they lived in the project or not. Um, and then they asked them, do you think people in the projects, the races in the projects get along? And they asked them, do you think people who live in the projects that these projects should be biracial? And mm. you were considered liberal if you said yes to both. They sh it should be biracial and the races get along. You were illiberal if you said no to both. And you were considered ambivalent if you said that the uh, housing projects shouldn't be biracial, but the races get along. Um, and so... The largest category of white residents were ambivalence. They took that out because they argued that ambivalence were an unsteady category, that eventually they would have to become either liberal or illiberal. They took out all the black residents because they said there weren't enough um, black residents with um, illiberals who had illiberal friends um, or ambivalent friends. Um, so this notion that similarity breeds connection is based on a massive erasure of um, of evidence. And on top of that, um, what they say in the published article them, themselves is that if you take a look, a broader look at the um, data they gathered, because they also asked people if you have acquaintances uh, in the projects, any people you visit, etc., that the, the larger picture was far more complicated and there were cross-racial and cross-gender friendships. Um, right. So what we're having right now through this notion of homophily is a, an amplification, not simply an amplification of a historical situation, but a distortion. Because what you're doing is taking only one piece of a very complex picture, but making it the default. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And not just narratively, but theoretically, ideologically, like the idea that we now inhabit... Um, this this reality that is hard to deny of sort of unprecedented political polarization because of uh, as you say a massive erasure of ev evidence a kind of subduing of the noisiness of networks and a imp the imposition of a specific kind of um, imperative on the on the messiness of social reality and you you frequently come back to the messy problem of political polarization in your thinking um, like you're you're adamant that homophily as a baseline assumption actually erases conflict, but not in the sense of like dealing with it. Um, homophily or, or this assumption that people, you know, seek other people like them and stick, stick with those groups um, actually makes conflict, to use your term, unsustainable uh, and a kind of corrosive force in society as a result. Like this is a problem you grapple with, especially in the coda for discriminating data. Could you explain why you feel like assuming we should have a world without conflict actually leads to bigger and more violent forms of conflict? Um, and what role, I guess, social media and di this sort of digital revolution plays in 
maybe like sorting us into these camps. Yes. So to, to tie this back into what I was saying about homophily, the weird thing about homophily is that it was justified. It's usually justified in terms of comfort. The idea that you're more comfortable around people like you, and this Mm -hmm. is why homophily exists. Um, But think about that for a second. I mean, family holidays where people who are, you know, have, genetically and culturally <laughs> the same are, are sites of great discomfort. Um, mm-hmm. um, and as well, uh, when Facebook limited the, the people's feeds more to friends and family, what happened wasn't less, uh, less disagreement, but more, um, mm-hmm. and more toxicity. So, one thing that I'm trying to do in terms of understanding uh, conflict, the necessity of it, and the, the polar its relationship to polarization, is the weird way in which the desire to segregate people into these "quote unquote" comfortable clusters uh, um, creates what I've called uh, comfortable clusters of agitated, sort of agitated clusters of comforting rage, um, wow. rather yeah. than the kinds of of productive disagreements that are part of democracy. So what I, I the example I always use is um, the classic high school experiment where you have some iron filings um, and then you stick a magnet underneath. And so uh, what happens is you move from a mass to an actual network. What, what you see emerge is a network because what, what's created are certain gaps from which lines emerge. And at the two clusters, um, what you have is both repulsion and attraction. Um, and if you look at these, uh, at the pole, right? So you have a whole bunch of iron filings um, and they're clustered together because they're so attracted to their opposite, right? Um, so here in, in social media terms, it's often hatred of the opposite that brings everyone together, but they also repel each other because they're all the same, right? Mm-hmm. So this is why they, they flare out. Um, and so what's happening are these like really angry clusters or agitated clusters that are maintained through this hatred or um, of the other. And what's happening now is that majorities are being formed um, not by appealing to things that are common, but rather taking these angry clusters and stringing them together. And mm-hmm. why this matters is because um, again, in terms of homophily, what matters aren't your banal likes. It's not like you like Harry Potter. Right? No one's going to form a, a very agitated cluster around that. Um, what they're going to form a cluster around is something that seems a little different, um, something that seems a little stigmatized or um, odd, right? Um, and that from that, uh, you build these angry clusters, which then are linked together. Um, I like to think about it as in terms of um, beads in a necklace. Mm -hmm. Um, But so if you have these sort of angry clusters, what you don't have are these, um, these discussions and these, these ways of, of engaging around issues that need to be discussed uh, respectfully. um, And in terms that uh, don't presume that we should all be alike and that we need to be alike in order to agree or disagree. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, that is such a 
helpful unpacking of this sometimes, you know, too crudely cast into the conversation notion of like echo chambers or silos. Like those are useful metaphors, but sometimes I feel like they obscure more than they kind of reveal. Um, I did want to ask you about your recent article uh, with Javier Ruiz uh, Solar on the rise of right-wing extremism in Canada. Um, You know, the essay is called Regionally Alt-Right, and it discusses um, the creation of these really isolationist, kind of oppositional right-wing communities online. Um, One of the main points that you and Solar make is that Canadian alt-right movements often soften their message by focusing on the preservation of Canadian values, and that a huge part of this is stressing the idea of oil as lifestyle. Um, one of the you know most commonly tweeted words within the issue public that you're studying, organized under the rubric of Wexit, was oil. I wondered, you know, does identifying the the substance, the resource, oil that's at the core of these values, kind of help you diagnose what the movement for, as it were, freedom, a specific freedom in certain parts of Canada and certain provinces is about? Like, can we also, can we kind of try here to name the exact sort of lifestyle or exact sort of freedom that is being so militantly protected? Yeah, there's so many ways into that question. Um, but I think that that question, if, if, if to think through, there's two questions there. One is the question of resources, right? And that, that mm-hmm. goes to some of the earlier questions that you've raised as well, because behind artificial intelligence and all our technologies, of course, is an extreme use of resources. Yeah. Um, and so it's always been paradoxical to me that global climate change is itself a computational concept, right? So they couldn't even conceive of, of climate as, in, in, as we do of it now and, until there was widespread computation. Um, and of course, this requires many resources that are themselves responsible for climate change. Mm-hmm. And so the whole questions of, of resources and its impact on um, these systems are also something that uh, Kate Crawford and Atlas of AI has gone through in terms of minerals, et cetera, et cetera. So there is this question yeah. of resources. And in terms of petrocultures and the other things you're describing, this sense of freedom or rebellion, right, or authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we're seeing right now is increasing weaponization of notions of authenticity, where you show your authentic, again, by being clustered into these quote-unquote authentic likes, which are usually considered things that uh, are things, uh, what makes you authentic is how you break the rules, right? Um, Rather than how you follow the rules increasingly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a way in which um, notions of rebellion, of questioning, etc., have been taken up in ways that lead to um, radicalization. And what I find most troubling isn't that people um, now distrust certain sources, right, or or institutions, because I think democracy is based on questioning, but rather that their distrust of certain institutions leads to a profound trust of even more um, dubious sources, like the the notion of the black pill or the notion Mm -hmm. of um, QAnon, et cetera. Um, And so I think there has to be a way in which we engage with questioning and understand the importance of questioning um, to keep that spirit alive. And so you don't have these movements um, that 
that uh, that uh, radicalize and amplify um, existing discrimination and make it in such a way that they're answering questions um, rather than um, being part of the issue. Yeah. Um, and your, your thinking on authenticity, especially, um, is, is really nuanced. It's like very, it's about, as you say, um, the historical and well-known paradoxes that structure the concept of authenticity, um, and, and how it's, it's an incredibly kind of elusive notion. Um, and so it's, it's hard to like, um, pin it down and that's part of the point is that it, it's semantic content is, is um, yeah, determined in a really ad hoc way, which is interesting. There is this documentary uh, directed by Theo Anthony that came out, I think, last year, uh, maybe the year before, called All Light Everywhere. Um, and it offers a pretty shocking history of like filmmaking and how it intersects with the history of weapons. Um, he talks to people at Axon, the company that used to be called Taser, uh, that makes over 50% of the body cameras worn by police in the U.S. and many of the wep- advanced weapons that they they use. Um, this institution of policing, right, that has undergone an enormous kind of wave of distrust, but then also this kind of reactionary wave of, of renewing and increasing their budgets. Um now, you know, one of the things that is a kind of point of commonality between All Light Everywhere and some of the work that you're doing theoretically in discriminating data is, you know, ta- around talking about the the place of French police detective Alphonse Bertillon um, in the kind of history of criminology, right? Bert- Bertillon, you know, a, you, you say, had this goal of like authentication, of recognizing criminals assumed in advance to be a stable category. Um, whose characters don't really change, even if their appearances do. Um, and this is, you know, to maybe in a, in a very um, grounded way, kind of circle back to this idea that we're actually predicting the past with these technologies. Um, Anthony's point is to focus on the assumptions of the person making the composite. But I wondered if you could help us think through why getting a fuller sense of this history of prediction is important for like contemporary social justice struggles, right? Like, um, is it about questioning the common sense of some of these technologies and encouraging a level of distrust around them? So my um, my background is in engineering, right? So my, my undergrad degree is in engineering and then I got a PhD in English literature. And I encourage everybody to cross disciplines. I tell my students mm-hmm. in the humanities to take tech courses and, and um, people in tech to take humanities courses. And for those in the humanities, I tell them to do this not because suddenly if they you know take an engineering course and they learn how to program, they'll understand everything, but they'll understand how much we can't know about technology. Um, but, mm. So I'm trained as an engineer and I can tell you theoretically what my computer is doing at every level, but I can't tell you what it's doing right now. Um, And I think that one of the reasons why we need to engage with technology closely um, isn't because I'm a technological determinist and I think, okay, technology determines everything. So therefore, you know, technology is is both the problem and the solution, but rather it's only through engaging technology closely um, that we understand the ways in which certain things have become defaults and and embedded Mm -hmm. within our technologies. Um, and also embedded within society. 
And so one reason why I think we need to look at these predictive technologies really carefully is because they are, if they become the default, what will happen is we can't learn from our mistakes because our mistakes have automatically become our future. Mm. And that's a profound situation. Um, Mm -hmm. And it changes fundamentally what history is supposed to be and why we study history. Um, and that if you think through, you know, text mining, et cetera, that, that you pointed out that's becoming ever more popular, popular if it itself is built on um, uh, certain electronic texts, et cetera, which themselves have been generated using these, we're, we're in this really horrible um, funnel. Uh, and and the, if these technologies are so disruptive, it's not because they've made possible radical new futures, but they close them down. So I think that our commitment to the future is exactly why we should question these technologies. But having said this, I think we should also use them and understand um, their limitations and possibilities. And for me, the prime example here would be a global climate change model and the the debates over global climate change. Um, So what global climate change models do is give you the most likely future based on the past that it's captured. Um, but the point of global climate change models um, is not at a, at a basic level to be correct. Um, like the modelers don't want to find out if their predictions about what will happen in 2050, if we keep doing this, uh, they don't want to know if these predictions are correct. The goal of these models is for us to act in such a way so that these, um, their results don't become verifiable because they draw on certain truths. Um, and so I think that one thing that's absolutely key, and then when a, a model says, look, you know, the temperature is likely to go up by three degrees Celsius, we don't then try to fix the model, we try to fix the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of these discriminatory predictive um, systems like Compass, which is a system is that many of us talk about, um, what they reveal, um, are, if we read them across, like against the grain, um, is the systemic nature of racism. So it it shows us if nothing changes, racial discrimination in the uh, sentencing um, will continue, sentencing system will continue. Um, But not only that, if you think again, that compass, the goal of compass was to get rid of individual bias, that the notion of the individual, that the judge might skew things a certain way. Um, and, and studies have shown that individual judges um, are very um, impacted by their circadian rhythms. So you want to go in front of a judge before, um, you don't want to go in front of a judge before lunch because they'll be hungry and cranky. You want to go after. Um, hmm. But if Compass got rid of um, individual bias, what they replaced it with was a systemic bias. And so, and by studying these systems and understanding how things like um, dirty data and also age at time of arrest has this huge impact and link that to the over and under policing of certain areas within Canada and the US, you get a far more refined understanding of how and why existing systems are biased. Hmm. Yeah, and um, to kind of pick up on the uh, the climate change analogy, uh, because you've you've kind of touched on it a couple times, 
um, you know, I find it really interesting what you're doing with that kind of comparison to um, the kind of, you know, persistence of systemic racism in this kind of mode of digital denial that Ruha Benjamin talks about. Um, yeah, I mean, like, the the overall point, like in my reading of what you're doing kind of politically in your work is to say that like, this is not just a matter of intellectual curiosity, right? Like um, it is not like, like the goal is to refuse the prediction. I, like, I, I think that point is so powerful. Um, and you get that point across by making the analogy to global climate change. And to me, it, it just makes so much sense that, you know, yes, we have like all kinds of scientific models, tons of data on the kinds of damage if we continue on the course of continuing to ramp up fossil fuel extraction, plastics production, whatever it may be. Um, but like what's missing is what we might call political will. Um, you know, uh, uh, when, so this idea that like when predictions point to, I'm quoting you realities and futures that need to be rejected. The idea here is that, um, the prediction is not helpful in and of itself. Like what, we require, if I'm reading you correctly, is a relationship to prediction that is less fatalistic and more inspired to outright refuse the prediction, to kind of incite, as you put it, like a new world, to create a new world. You know, I, I this is just a roundabout way of saying, like, I, I find uh, the model that you offer to be one that is one we can organize around, right? To not merely fatalistically accept these predictions, but to actively do something to combat them. You know. Thank you. Yes, and, and I think again, what I would stress is the gap between a prediction and reality is the space for politics and political action. Yeah, um, and and there too, I mean, like um, I see lots of analogies between that problem, that incredibly messy circular problem of trying to um, find an escape velocity for petrocultural forms of capitalism, and this current. Uh, trajectory that we're on with regard to adopting technology in criminal justice um, circles. Like, you know, in the book, Digitize and Punish, Brian Jeff Jefferson argues um, that as long as, quote, criminal justice technology is produced for profit, newer technologies are bound to make their way to the market. So for him, there's like no, like there's a need for escape, there's a need for abolition, but there, there's not much room for the politics of imagining it, it seems to me. And there is this like capitalist determinism at work there that says, even if something like facial recognition technology is problematized in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the uprising for black lives, the market incentivized production of carceral technologies will ensure that they make their way to the market, that they flood society. So, you know, like, I wonder if you could speak to this, like, the, the immediate moment after 2020 of politicizing facial recognition technology in which, you know, like Amazon stopped selling the technology and so on, the suppression of the research of people like Timnit Gebru at Google, um, who exposed the fact that like using facial rec recognition technology is ridiculously dangerous. And if you could describe for people that may not fully understand yet, like the level of saturation facial recognition technology has achieved to date and what the implications are um, in terms of trying to employ these technologies in law enforcement. Yeah, so facial recognition technology is um, like when you go to the mall and you look at the um, listings, the directory, and it like follows you and you can look at it or you go to the airport and you deal with a interactive touch screen, et cetera, um, use facial recognition technology. 
Um, there's this, it's a way that it's embedded into almost anything you look at. Um, now, there's problems with facial recognition technology in terms of accuracy um, and its ability to accurately recognize people, especially people of color. And this is something that Tinmit, Gebru, and Joy Bolami have um, documented. Um, but as they stress, the, the point isn't then to make facial recognition technology better at recognizing people of color. Necessarily, the point is to, to, for us to question the use of facial recognition technology. Right. Um, more generally. And what I find really interesting uh, is so, okay, so first of all, as well, what how facial recognition technology operates and what it justifies is the mass collection of all Facebook, Instagram, etc. Um, images. So anything you put out there. So something like Clearview AI, which has been offered for free to certain police agencies to use, does this massive scrape of social media. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's also sort of issues of privacy and capture um, involved in it, as well as accuracy, because again, it is not that accurate. And, and also in terms of the predictions that it's, uh, it claims to be able to make, not certainly, not just in terms of identifying who you are, you are X, but what you are. Um, so mm -hmm. claims around gaydar, et cetera. Um, but what's interesting about facial recognition technology as well, to go back to your point of what can be done, is that the city of San Francisco was one of the very first, in fact, was the first to ban facial recognition technology used by municipalities. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is, of course, because a lot of people in San Francisco work in the belly of the beast. But what it also showed, um, but it was also uh, rejected because... Um, of racialized minorities who were against the use of facial recognition technology and other carceral technology. So it was a really interesting moment where um, civil liberties and um, civil rights came together. And I think that these moments of coming together are key because civil liberties and civil rights shouldn't be opposed. Um, right. And they aren't opposed. Um, and what's also um, very important is that a lot of the discussions now around harms, online harms, have been done in terms of freedom of expression. Like when you take away somebody's freedom of expression. Um, and so uh, by, by um, abusing them, right? So I think that the questions that we need to think about in, in terms of these moments of promise are the ways in which we need to, to think expansively um, with others about these problems that face us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I see the impact of your research being to kind of um, broaden and just like deepen that conversation. Um, and I, I like, I just hope for a future in which the kind of research that you and others are doing has like more and more of this kind of um, ripple effect, this influence on policy where uh, those connections are made. And so, yeah, I mean, um, the last the last question I really wanted to ask you was about sort of um, imagining where that groundswell will come from. You know, you and others are part of a growing group of communicators that are clearly speaking to people's growing concerns about the role of digital technologies in the networked world, um, public sentiment about the place of the internet, social media, algorithmic regulation of kind of individual and collective agency is not so supportive anymore, you know? And... And yet, as you point out in discriminating data, 
there is a certain irony there because new media still contains this kernel of utopianism. Um, you write that, quote, cyberspace was supposed to usher in a new era of global democracy, equality, and prosperity, but that basically the internet has become a nightmare, spawning worldwide surveillance networks, greater polarization, violence, extended pandemics, and planet-wrecking levels of consumption. Um, you know, even the promise of machine learning uh, uh, has largely begun to, as you say, exacerbate existing inequalities. So in the face of this thing that you call hopeful ignorance, you're calling for a more rigorous and solidaristic culture of care, I think, and contestation. Um, and, you know, I guess this is the hope question. I hate to do it, but where and when do you see that emerging? Do you see it happening both inside the university and outside? Is it one more than the other? Um, and are you encouraged basically by what, you know, some have called the tech lash? I see it everywhere. I see people mm -hmm. um, who don't like being tracked. I see people everywhere who are deeply, um, who want a better world in terms of global climate change. I see all sorts of movements and people who are concerned. Um, but I think that's one, that one thing is so key about in terms, in terms of building this groundswell or larger movement is that we have to engage and displace both the nightmare and the utopia. So, Because the problem isn't that somehow these technologies are simply nightmares. The problem is that techno these technologies have been sold as the solution to problems that people face. So I think one thing we need to do is to take on those problems um, and to refuse this, this the, the coupling of these technologies in terms of nightmare and utopia, um, and rather deal with people's everyday experiences with these technologies, which are both delightful and horrible. Um, mm -hmm. I, I formally have said, you know, new media at its best is wonderfully creepy. Um, <laughs> And I think that we need to deal with this wonderful creepiness um, in order and, and acknowledge this wonderful creepiness in order to take on uh, these, these, this amplification of, of surveillance and discrimination and polarization um, that we're facing. Yeah, that, I mean, I really appreciate uh, the way you put that, but also just making this time to talk to me about the work that um, I'm still kind of just trying to um, parse and, and, and apply, you know, in my own thinking, in my own teaching. So it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>